work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription oh hi hi i'm mick welcome to the past and the curious i guess you're here for the podcast which is good because that's what i have for you and it's a good one First off, if you're anywhere near Lexington, Kentucky on November 16th, I'm going to be at the Kentucky State Book Fair. The Kentucky Book Fair. Uh, It's going to be a lot of fun. I'll be there with the meat shower. So come say hey. This episode of The Past and the Curious features my friend Heather Gottlieb telling a story about Mary Shelley, who was not just the author of a really famous book, but also kind of sort of invented a genre that we would call science fiction, which is pretty amazing. Also, you will hear me tell you the story of a man named Von Kempelen and his automaton, which was a chess-playing robot that amazed people in a time long before robots were anything. It really, really freaked people out. I'm here to tell you about it. Thanks for joining us for episode 36 of The Past and the Curious. There's a saying people use when they talk about lots of things that might not seem related, but when they come together, they make something really big. They call it a perfect storm. It's a good image for the story I'm about to tell, especially because one of the ingredients of this particular perfect storm was actually a storm. What happens when you combine that with a volcano, a dissected frog, two bored teenage girls, and a very strange dream? Turns out you might end up with something that changes our culture forever. Mary Godwin was the kind of kid that kind of has to do something great. Her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, spoke three languages, earned her own living when that was not the way it was supposed to be done, and married for love when that also wasn't the norm. Mary Wollstonecraft was a risk taker. When things in her home country of England weren't quite going her way, she became curious about what was going on overseas in France. She'd heard that a revolution was brewing. She wanted to see for herself what would happen when the French people decided to overthrow their king. She was so inspired by the events of the French Revolution that she wrote several works of philosophy, including A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, which even to this day is considered one of the most important works ever written about women's equality. But that's a story for another podcast. William Godwin, Mary Godwin's dad, was also a philosopher who questioned the way things were in the world. He met her mom at a dinner held by their publisher, which sounds very glamorous in New York for 18th century London. They fell in love and got married. Their daughter was born in 1797. It seemed like this power couple would have the world at their feet and would be completely unstoppable as a family of three. Unfortunately, that wasn't to be the case. Mary Wollstonecraft died only a month after their baby was born. William loved his daughter very much and decided to be much more involved with her life than a typical widowed dad of the 1700s might be. 
He took care to educate Mary, and whenever he traveled, he wrote that he thought about her every day. The only hiccup came when he decided to get married again to his neighbor, Mary Jane Claremont. Miss Claremont was not an evil stepmother by any means, but the memory of Mary Wollstonecraft set the bar very high for her only daughter. Mary Godwin never got along with her stepmother, although she did find a fast friend in her daughter Claire, who became her partner in crime in many ways. She was always by her stepsister's side, even after Mary faced some severe social consequences after she secretly married a poet named Percy Shelley. By 1816, it was high time these three talented young people got out of London, just like Mary's mother had all those years before. Luckily, the most famous celebrity in London decided to offer up his villa in Switzerland as an escape. Lord Byron, owner of the villa, was handsome, well-connected, rich, and a war hero. Claire Claremont happened to be completely smitten by him, so she was happy to come along with Mary and Percy. The four of them and a few others wound up on vacation at the villa, which was on the shores of Lake Geneva in Switzerland. It was shaping up to be an incredibly fabulous summer. The funny thing was, this happened to be the year without a summer. In 1815, a volcano had erupted in Indonesia, and so much ash clouded the atmosphere that the weather changed across the globe into the next year. Crops failed and animals, including horses, sadly starved. This led to an invention that later became the bicycle, since people had to seek out other means of transportation. In America, people fled frigid New England, where they could ice skate in July, for places like Indiana and Illinois, which paved the way for that region to become America's heartland. In Germany, the first fertilizers were invented in hopes of helping people grow food. From China to Canada, it snowed in what were supposed to be the warmest months of the year, and for Mary, Percy, Claire, Lord Byron, and their friends in Geneva, what was supposed to be a fun and well-deserved summer away was shaping up to be one of the most boring seasons of their lives. They had planned to go boating to pass the time, but storms prevented them from leaving the house. The only thing that entertained them, this was over 200 years ago after all, was retelling each other old German ghost stories. After a while, even those got old. So they decided to write their own scary stories. It became a contest because everyone was desperate for something to liven up the dreary cold days. Everyone was smart and talented and sure they were going to win. One person decided to take on an old Eastern European myth with a story entitled The Vampire, upon which Lord Byron based a fragment of his own story, which was called, well, The Fragment. The bubble of attractiveness might be real for all the grown-ups who are listening. Percy Shelley strayed from the topic entirely with his poem, Hymn to Intellectual Beauty. Clara's contribution was lost to history, and Mary was absolutely stuck. One night, she had a nightmare that might have been inspired by some of the experiments that she'd heard that had been happening in Italy. Dr. Luigi Galvani had been testing the effects of electricity on dead frogs. It turned out that electricity could actually move their limbs, a process called galvanization. In Mary's nightmare, she saw something like this experiment, but happening to a real live man, and she wondered, could electricity create life where there wasn't any? The possibility was scary and thrilling. She woke up knowing what to write. Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, was Mary's contribution to the contest. It turned into a bigger work that explored the consequences of people having the power to play with life and artificial intelligence. In it, Dr. Victor Frankenstein creates something that he calls the creature. 
the creature can think and act by itself. Lots of moral questions ensue when the creature isn't what Dr. Frankenstein expected once he starts to act on his own. Needless to say, Mary won the contest that summer. The book was published to great controversy in 1818, but later became a staple of literature. It was originally published anonymously since so many people argued about the topic. Some people said that it toyed with the idea of playing God. When Mary completed the manuscript, she was only 19 years old. Since Frankenstein, many authors have imagined or speculated how new breakthroughs in science might affect everyday life and created entire worlds around these ideas. Famous authors from Edgar Allan Poe to Margaret Atwood were inspired to take current events that were taking place on various frontiers, whether it was the Arctic Circle, outer space, or the future. They explore how that might change things for humans and how people might feel in works of speculative or science fiction. Now, the genre includes such classics as Star Wars, and it's all thanks to a young woman who, if she were alive in 2019 instead of 1819, would be college age. Sometimes it does take a perfect storm of various forces to create huge effects in the world, whether it's a real storm or an imaginary one. Science fiction helps us to ask tough questions about new things in the world and has inspired some of the most beloved stories in our culture. I think that Mary Shelley, as the inventor of science fiction, teaches us an important lesson. You don't have to be a full-fledged adult or even a particularly experienced person to change things. All you need is imagination and a few of the right ingredients. This month for You Have 30 Seconds, we are going to space with Grace. Space Grace from El Dorado Hills. Ready for blast off. You've probably heard of Neil Armstrong, but did you know that there were many people who helped him land on the moon? One person was Eugene Cernan. In 1963, Cernan became a NASA astronaut and worked in the Apollo system. His first assignment was to go into lunar orbit and map out the mission that Armstrong would complete. Armstrong walked on the moon in 1969. Three years later, in 1972, Cernan had his chance, making him the last person to walk on the moon. Cernan died in 2017 at the age of 82. Thanks, Grace. That's a great story. I've actually been thinking a lot about Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and Eugene Cernan's a great part of that story, so thank you for sharing that. If you have somebody that you would like to tell us about or something from the past, you have 30 seconds to do it. It's really easy. All you need is a phone, so ask your parents for their help, and you can email it to us at The Past and the Curious. There's information and instructions on the website, thepastandthecurious.com. I want to hear your voice. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Oh, it's a spooky quiz time. Question number one. Though Bram Stoker isn't around today to confirm this, many people believe his novel Dracula was based on a real person, a Romanian ruler from the 15th century. Can you name him? Vlad Dracula, or Vlad the Impaler, is regarded as a hero by some and a monster to others. He was a fearsome ruler who protected his country in some scary ways. Let's just say that he earned his nickname, Vlad the Impaler. Question number two. The Tower of London is haunted by the ghost of an animal known as Old Martin. What kind of animal was Old Martin? 
Ba-da-ba-da. It is believed that long ago in Europe, people would avoid saying the word bear, kind of like they avoided saying the word Voldemort in Harry Potter. It was believed that this word could conjure the feared animal, and years later, a bear was brought to the Tower of London as a gift to the king. Though he lived out his days in a zoo, several guards have claimed to have been frightened by something like a bear in the tower many years after he had left. Question number three. The Raven is one of the most well-known poems in history. The moody and well-written poem features a bird who answers all of the narrator's questions with one word, nevermore. But Edgar Allan Poe's famous work might not have featured a raven at all. Do you know what he considered first? In an essay, Poe would explain that the original idea for the talking bird was, naturally, a parrot. He wisely decided, however, that the colorful and flamboyant bird didn't really fit the dark mood of the poem, and it would be a raven who would perch upon that bust of palace just above the narrator's chamber door. It perched and sat and nothing more. Maria Theresa. Archduchess of Austria, Holy Roman Empress, and Queen of Hungary and Bohemia had a very long title and a lot of power in Europe in the 1700s. She also had a very big family, giving birth to 16 children. While she loved these children, she also saw them as something like living, crying, diaper-wearing chess pieces. Her instinct was not to conquer other kingdoms with the sword, though she did that on occasion. Instead, she used her kids, marrying them into other kingdoms strategically. You may have heard of her daughter, Marie Antoinette. She would marry King Louis XVI of France. Unfortunately, the two of them would find their bodies separated from their heads during the French Revolution. Maria Theresa would keep her head, though. And as the most powerful woman in Europe, everyone wanted that head looking at them. In 1769, she spent one afternoon in Vienna using that powerful head to look at Francois Pelletier. He was an illusionist, a magician of sorts who used physics and science to create illusions to dazzle the eye and confuse the mind. According to many sources, he was, um, pretty good. Not great, just pretty good. But as far as Maria Theresa was concerned, he was amazing. She had never seen anything like it and simply loved his show. It was always a good thing to find favor with the Archduchess of the Holy Roman Empire, so Pelletier was probably feeling pretty good about things. At least until someone spoke up. The heads in the room, Maria Theresa's included, turned with a gasp <gasps> to face Wolfgang von Kempelen. He was a brilliant man and trusted advisor to the queen. And he was not impressed with Pelletier's illusions. Uh, excuse me? How about you come over here and say that to my face? Listen, Pelletier, I mean no great offense. It's just that I see right through your tricks like I can see through a clean window at high noon. Oh, a window, eh? Why I oughta break that window over your head. Gentlemen, that is more than enough. I rather enjoyed Mr. Pelletier's show. And you find fault? Madame Archduchess, the Holy Roman Empress Queen, is that what I call you? Um, 
Yes, that'll do. Well, it's simple magnetics. Anyone who has merely dabbled in the sciences will know how you create these childish illusions. I'm just saying, I would be embarrassed to bring this amateur hour show before the illustrious court of the greatest monarch to ever grace a throne. You, Maria Teresa. I think you're just jealous she likes my act as much as she does. I'm not jealous. You think you can do better? I do. Okay, Kimpelin, put your magic where your mouth is. You have six months to knock my socks off. Go create something new and amazing. I'll have someone make me some new fancy socks just for the occasion. Point of clarity. We are pretty sure the conversation did not go exactly like this, since no one recorded it word for word. Uh, but we believe many of these things were said in one way or another. Kimplin had to get to work right away, because six months would fly by in a blink. Luckily, he was a bright guy. The Hungarian man wasn't just a math whiz, he was a polyglot, meaning he knew many languages. And for his day job, he put that ability to use, translating complex legal codes for the kingdom. He also managed salt mines for the queen, and, uh... Sorry, I'm falling asleep because that's so boring. So it's hard not to see why he would get so excited about creating some magic. It would be a welcome change. Light bulbs went off in his head with each new idea, which was amazing since light bulbs hadn't even been invented yet. But his mind kept coming back to the automaton. Wildly popular at the time, automatons were mechanical devices, early robots of sorts. They were precisely programmed and built to appear lifelike and capable of doing nearly anything. Famous already was one early robotic creation that looked and moved like a man and actually played the flute. But perhaps the most famous of its day was the digesting duck. Inside this creature was a network of gears and pulleys and other simple machines, but on the outside, it looked just like a duck. In order to delight his audiences, the inventor would introduce the duck, which began to move, and bob upon a gilded pedestal. The creature quacked. It splashed water with its beak, and it even ate grain from the palm of a hand. No. And then, if the audience wasn't flabbergasted enough, it did the unthinkable, the most convincing, the hilarious. It pooped. It was a machine, and people knew that, but the fact that so much perfect clockwork and mechanical precision was placed into such a small invention that was meant only to delight captured imaginations. Drawing inspiration and considering his queen's focus on chess-like machinations, Kimpelin settled on what he would build. It would feature much less poop than the duck, and far more chess. Exactly six months later, he triumphantly brought it to the court of Maria Teresa. Quizzical looks and curious faces blinked from Kempelin to the invention and back. It was a man, life-sized and seated behind a cabinet, and on top of the cabinet sat a chessboard. Kempelin wheeled the seated man around, and he opened the doors in the face of the cabinet, and inside people saw a complex array of shiny gears and machinery. Nothing tricky. He then showed them the back doors, and there was more of the same. Next, he set the pieces to prepare the chessboard for a match and then asked the room for a challenger. The volunteer would play this automaton, this mechanical man, in a game of chess. Immediately, the room filled with disbelief. 
What a preposterous thought. A chess game required intelligence, logic, and analysis. Each game was unique and had thousands of possible scenarios. How could an automaton made of wood and metal possibly play a living, breathing, thinking human being? A volunteer stepped forward, and as the game began, the automaton moved its head back and forth. It raised a slightly unsteady wooden arm, clumsily grabbed a piece, and moved it on the board. Easy enough. Automatons had been built to do very specific things. Perhaps this one was programmed to play the same game of chess over and over. But as it went on, it was clear that this was not the case. The audience watched in confusion and disbelief as the chess-playing robot defeated the volunteer. Checkmate! Eat your heart out, Pelletier! Now, this was 1770, and we were a long way from artificial intelligence. This was like losing to a grandfather's clock, and many people were startled, alarmed. There was nothing in the natural world that could explain what just happened. Minds were blown. More and more people wanted to see for themselves, and for a while, Kempelen obliged, demonstrating his magical machine for others. But having achieved his primary goal of impressing the queen... He grew weary before long. He had legal codes to translate and salt mines to manage. So at some point, he told people that the machine had been disassembled and put into storage. But you can't keep something like that under wraps for long. The automaton was taken on a tour of Europe where it defeated none other than Benjamin Franklin in a game of chess. After Kempelen's death in 1804, the chess-playing automaton changed hands, and the new owner arranged for a match with Napoleon Bonaparte. Bonaparte wished to test the machine, and he made an illegal move. The machine shook its head defiantly and moved the piece back to where it began. He tried a second time, and the wooden man simply removed the piece from the board and took its turn. When Napoleon tried a third illegal move, the automaton angrily swept its wooden arm across the board, sending all of the pieces crashing to the floor. Stories of the encounter say that Napoleon was delighted with the machine's reaction. The new owner eventually brought the automaton to America, where it was only used occasionally, and it spent its last years gathering dust at none other than Charles Wilson Peale's museum. A fire destroyed it in 1854. Throughout its lifetime, people like Benjamin Franklin and Edgar Allan Poe tried to figure out how this wooden man filled with gears and simple machines could play such intelligent games of chess. As it turns out, just like Pelletier's tricks, the automaton's chess prowess was all an illusion. Anytime a game was to be played, if you looked very closely, balled up in that cabinet, you would find a man a really great chess-playing man. And as Kempelen closed the doors and wheeled the creation around to show the crowd his mechanical wonder, the man would duck, bend, and flex to stay out of sight using the cover of the machinery inside. He could see the game through the board above, and he could carefully control the body of the wooden man with mechanical levers also on the inside of the cabinet. It was an incredible illusion that amazed, confused, and even frightened people for nearly a century. Yeah, he fooled plenty of people, but he also delighted many of them along the way. 
Thank you for listening to episode 36 of The Past and the Curious. I think it's 36. I should probably double check that. Don't take my word for that, but I think it's episode 36. Whatever number it is, I have some people to thank. First off, I need to thank William, or at least I think I need to thank William. Maybe when you subscribe to my Patreon, you uh, did it in somebody's name. So if I need to thank someone else, uh, like a child, if you're not a child, then tell me, and I'll thank them in the next episode, by all means. And the same goes for this next person, who is getting a shout-out, and that is Alice! 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 <laughs> Alice! Thank you. Thank you. Or at least I think thank you. I think thank yes, you. thank you. Yes, thank you. But if it's somebody else that I need to thank, thank them too. Yeah, and last but not least, Lisa, Bobby, Michael, and I guess Remy too. Um, I'll get your song together for the next episode, um, which, fair warning, is about water, sewers, and a little bit of poop. But since you're changing, you know, diapers all the time, it shouldn't be too gross for you. But for the rest of you all out there, you're just going to have to wait for that poopy fun. If you'd like to support us, you can join on Patreon. Uh, we also have a new T Public site, which we'll make some social media posts about so you can find the link, because it's kind of hard to navigate. Uh, but we do have t-shirts available there if you're looking for something like that. T-shirts and bags and sweatshirts and whatever, you know, pretty cool. Uh, reminder again about the Kentucky Book Fair, November 16th, I'll be there. And uh, I'm gonna let the music run out, but I'm gonna keep talking to you. Uh, I'm a big part of Kids Listen. In fact, I'm the co-chair this year. And we are actually going to be undergoing a huge survey that we hope to use to understand how kids use podcasts, how families use podcasts. And you can do us a huge favor. If you see the link being shared by me or being shared by any one of the other kids listen family out there, which I know you listen to many of them probably, uh, please fill out that survey. It will help us, one, get a better idea, but two, it will help us validate kids programming in the eyes of people that don't see validity in it which is super weird but um there's a lot to be gained from it we did one about three or four years ago three years ago i guess i don't know and it was it was really really great we learned a lot and we got a lot of press and momentum because of it so if you see that link please 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 take a minute to fill it out i've done it it's very easy so look for that thank you very much we'll talk to you in less than a month Happy Halloween if you're listening to this before Halloween. Hope you had a good Halloween if you're listening after. Bye.